General or Commodore, or whatever you're calling yourself. Right now, I'm on the bridge of the toughest, fastest, most powerful ship Starfleet has ever put into service. And I've got a fleet of them at my back. We've got our phasers locked on your warp cores. Nothing would make me happier than you giving me an excuse to kick your treacherous Talciar ass. But instead, I'm going to ask you one time to stand down. General, your orders. Retarget weapon systems. Prepare to fight. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton wondering just what is her plan, Cam? What is her plan? Well, we're going to talk about that quote unquote plan this week because we are going to talk about the hilariously abandoned plots of Kurtzman Trek, um, a category of, you know, conversation that you and I have talked a lot about just randomly covering new Trek, but let's all group them together in one episode because, boy, are there a lot of plot threads that have been dropped along the way. And I think the reason we're highlighting them is because the writers highlighted the seeming importance of mm -hmm. these plots or these characters or these moments that it is meant to carry some weight and some gravitas towards the audience. They they went out of their way to uh, showcase this in any given episode or maybe for an episode or two. And then we have not heard Bupkiss uh, for years at this point. And it, it is pretty funny when you think about it. So I think we're going to have some fun with this episode. And we're also yeah. going to talk about kind of what this means. Like th there will be kind of uh, questions that we want to answer here. Yeah, and this is not a beat up on Kurtzman Trek episode because, you know, you can look at the past Star Trek shows, you know, Future Guy and Enterprise. What happened with that? The conspiracy setup on TNG. What happened there? So, like, these things exist over the history of Star Trek, but no one's really, you know, compiled those lists of these kind of plot threads on New Trek. So, Cam, why don't you take it away and we'll go back and forth uh, for the next hour. Okay, well, let's start with early Star Trek Discovery with the setup of black badges. Um, I think, you know, for those of us who are, you know, as podcasters, we were covering the show week to week. We saw black badges in like the third episode. Context is for Kings on Discovery. It's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. We have the, uh, you know, the ship has the 31, which was obviously a tribute to Halloween. But at the time, you're like 31 black badges on the ship. We're being pointed in a direction. Clearly, that's not where they want to go. But black badges, Tyler, why were there black badges? Well, I, I don't for an instant believe that it, that the original intention was they were supposed to represent Section 31. I, I am so skeptical yeah. of that. This is actually uh, one of the scripts that uh, co-creator of Discovery, Brian Fuller, still had credit on. I think I, I'm quite confident in saying that this is not his intention here. Uh, the fact of the matter is, remember how they kept emphasizing this is a science vessel. This is a science vessel. And Cam, it, it's not just that they introduced the idea of black badges, is that there were Section 31 operatives walking around with black badges on Discovery, guarding some sort of room, <laughs> and then they never talked about it ever again, what these um, operatives, uh, apparent operatives were doing. It, it, it was just, it, it completely disappeared until I think, was it season two? It was actually, no, no, it was like this, uh, do you remember there's like this kind of bumper scene that they released uh, between the season finale of season one and the season premiere of season two? And it was essentially uh, Leland uh, meeting up with Giorgio at some bar on Kronos and like throwing a black badge her way and trying to recruit her for section 31. That's what makes me convinced that the intention was never to pursue some sort of section 31 storyline. But what was going on, Cam, with like this, one of the very few Brian Fuller scripts they had Starfleet officers walking around, guarding some sort of room. 
that we never revisited once again. They never addressed directly what was going on right there. And all of a sudden, you know, Berman's like, uh, Burnham is like, oh, whoa, what are those black badges? Apparently, in this era of Star Trek, everybody knows who Section 31 is. Even Amanda Grayson knows who Section 31 is at this point. (laughs) So how could Michael Burnham not know what those black badges signified? You know, it's just one of the silliest things that they highlight and then they just completely abandon until they kind of, you know, retcon it into this uh, bumper scene between seasons one and two. It kind of reminds me a little bit of in Empire Strikes Back, there was a deleted scene. Um, I don't even know if they finished, if they shot the whole thing, but where um, there was a room in the rebel base full of wampas and C-3PO was going to rip the label off the door that said warning and stormtroopers were going to go in there and get killed by the wampas. And they, you know, this is not in the movie, but I believe the label is ripped on the door. But, like, imagine if that scene had featured guards in, like, wampa costumes standing outside and they just left it in and it would be so distracting. That's how I feel here. We're having these black badges wait, wait, guarding wait, wait. a door. Mm, go ahead. What's a wampa? Oh, okay. Yes. I, I just assume naturally, of course, that everyone knows the Star Wars vernacular. They are the, like, abominable snowman who attack Luke um, at the start of uh, um, Empire Strikes okay. Back. I got gotcha, you. I yes. got gotcha. you. Yes. Apologies. Um, but yeah, so like, it's kind of like, imagine there was like, you know, sirens beside the door going off. So the whole audience is looking at that door going, clearly <laughs> there's something in there. Like, that's not the case. But in Discovery, it is. So it's the sort of thing we'll probably never have an answer. And I think that's something we can talk about over the course of this episode of, is there story potential to revisit some of these plot threads? This case, mm, not likely, given that Discovery has leaped far off into the future. But yeah, it's a real you know, head scratcher. I'll, I'll tell you what my theory though was. I, I think it had something to do with the mirror universe, you know, like that was mm-hmm. the original tension is that they would actually be jumping into the mirror universe at the beginning of the season rather yeah. than more towards the middle end that we got. This is when Brian Fuller was still heavily involved with the breaking of the season's story. I think the idea is you're going to set up their Burnham stuff in like the first three episodes. And then by episode four, you'd be leaping over to the Mirror Universe. And this is actually, I think by episode four is when Brian Fuller was officially just not even involved with the story anymore. Um, like he didn't even make it into like where they were filming the yeah. uh, first episode, the, the Vulcan Hello. So uh, so what was behind that door? You know, and, and the other thing that's worth bringing up here, Cam, um, maybe this is kind of a segue into yet another thing, but, but we have the introduction of Ellen Landry and it's, very clear that the intention when she's first introduced is that she's from the mirror universe just in the way that she uh is is referring to prisoners as animals just her uh just disgust and dismay with um starfleet values like how does this person make it all the way through the academy even um mirror universe Lorca, who is still in disguise back then he wasn't even so on the nose with you know how quote unquote uh uh, anti-federation values he was at this point so uh, to me it was just a little funny i think they're behind that door something going on with the mirror universe like were those black badges originally from the mirror universe i don't know i do wonder if landry is you know in cahoots with Lorca, mirror Lorca, which seems to be the case um at least in her first appearance is there like a gateway to the mirror universe that is being guarded that these two characters are kind of going back and forth through because that would actually make sense to me uh, of course because think about like how they got back to the, year, <laughs> the mirror universe um Lorca pushes a couple buttons on hmm. his uh, captain's chair yep. and they zap over to the mirror universe i'm just like maybe they were guarding those black badges were guarding some sort of transporter that was a direct gateway to the mirror universe or something like that i just thing is like it feels as if brian fuller had a uh, no pun intended, but a fuller idea of what might be, you know, lurking around that mere universe versus what we got, which was clearly just kind of being made up on the spot by the writers uh, as they kind of raced to write that season as quickly as possible. So what do we make of the character of Landry as exists now? Well, when we actually see her mere universe version, you know, like <laughs> the first time we see her, that is prime Landry. Um, yeah. Is there any difference between the Mirror Landry and the Prime Landry? I think the Mirror Landry might be nicer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so it, it, it's kind of like, um, 
I like I I think they were actually wanted to do anything good with the mirror Landry. They should have made her even sweeter, like um, mm. comically sweeter. You know, like that would have been like kind of a fun thing to do. I just uh, it, to me, it's just when you're watching that episode week to week as we we're doing like five years ago, which is like wow, man, uh, that takes me back. Mm. And you're watching a character like that where there's no way you could have guessed she's from the mirror universe just by her first appearance and by whatever few breadcrumbs were there. Uh, I, you watch that week to week, and you just really don't know what to make of that character. Uh, listeners, uh, Cam, you'll admit it. You you certainly had a bit of a bit of a crush on the character, but it <laughs> says was... a lot about me. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> uh, you animal. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, it so <laughs> it's like prod me like Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah i know right <laughs> you tardigrade you that's but, right <laughs> uh, so it, it's just very weird watching that character who when we finally make that leap to the mirror universe in the uh, mid-season finale and then we kind of can do the math in our head when we re-watch that season i'm just like oh it is so obvious that she was originally meant to be written as kind of like another one of uh, Lorca's crew members that survived the destruction of the Mirror Universe Baran and somehow made their way into Prime Universe Star Trek. Yeah, I mean, the pro- it really frustrates me though when you've got like a character who's kind of like, Landry only has a few episodes, but is very recognizable. And so when you have to kind of like headcanon their existence on the show, that's never a good situation. <laughs> It just, it just doesn't make sense that she would be a legit Starfleet officer who... Because because the other thing is, uh, it wasn't like she was a survivor of the Prime Baran. Because remember, like, every, Lorca lost everybody on the Baran in the Prime Universe. And somehow, Mir Lorca made his way into our universe during the simultaneous destruction. I, am I remember these plot threads, Cam? Is, is that kind of what your memory is of, of how that all went down? There's an ion storm, right? That is to the best of my memory. I mean, p- people, we did our research for this episode, but we can't rewatch the entire history of Kurtzman nah. Trek for this one. Yeah, I think it was an ion storm. Yeah. Yeah. So I essentially, like, he was the only one that made it back. That That is confirmed. Because it, it, we met Mir Landry confirmed when we went to the Mir universe that season. So it just, so what would have happened then is that, like, Lorca somehow was looking up crew files, maybe psych profiles, and he realized, you know what? This woman is a little bit of a psychopath, doesn't share values. I'm looking at her psych profile. I'm going to recruit her, uh, much like I recruited Michael Burnham. I mean, there's definitely bad apples in Starfleet. We did an episode about it. And it would have been an interesting thing to look at, maybe in a flashback or... um... We had that whole, you know, flashback to the uh, Mirror Universe two-parter in Discovery Season 3. They teased Lorca a lot. It feels like the sort of thing that would have been fun to pay (laughs) off in some way. I don't think it ever, although never rule it out. They keep finding ways to suddenly bring back Landry by surprise on the show. So it seems unlikely to be paid off in any way, but I wouldn't hate it if they did it. That's for sure. Okay. Okay. Um, Cam, why don't I do another uh, Star Trek Discovery one here? are there thermonuclear weapons still circulating on Kronos <laughs> in the 25th century when we meet up with uh, Worf in Season 3 of Picard? Is that still going on? They've, look, Laurel, as far as we know, in Strange New Worlds, is still the Chancellor of Kronos. And she'll be replaced at some point with uh, Gorkon. Remember, again, Gorkon's um, daughter took over as Chancellor. But by the time we got to the 24th century, women were no longer allowed to be Chancellors. So it was a little bit of a weird thing. And I, I just wonder how long it was Laurel got to serve as chancellor only because she had threatened the entire planet with thermonuclear destruction. And it's never been addressed ever since then. It seems like the sort of thing that would come up in conversation. Although maybe if you were to ask Worf about it, say in Picard season three, he would say, we don't discuss it with outsiders. True. Because yeah. it is pretty embarrassing. If you are the Klingons who are like these proud warriors who have had a bomb implanted in your planet by like <laughs> Starfleet Black Ops, would you ever mention this to anyone? I feel like this is the sort of thing they would want to keep secret. <laughs> but also just think about what a deus ex machina that really was. Mm-hmm. Kim, 
when we were getting yeah. closer and closer to this season finale, we were like, how on earth are they supposed to wrap up this Klingon war? Yeah. Uh, they, they spent so long kind of building up to the war, leading up to it, and then we spend another four episodes in the Mirror Universe, and we come back, and I think there's only two episodes left to wrap everything up. Uh, going into that season finale, I, I, I'm sure if you went and listened to our uh, penultimate episode review, for, um, I'm sure we <laughs> kept asking ourselves, like, uh, how is this supposed to wrap up within 60 minutes next week? Well, it's a problem that the show, not just this show, but some of the other new Star Trek shows have run into, which is like, when you look at, you know, the past shows, like they would set up stakes that like could be very compelling and suspenseful and tense and all that sort of thing. But like Discovery would really go big. And I remember when we had that episode coming back from the Mirror Universe when they were like, since we were away, the Klingons have really gained so much traction in the war and have basically taken over a whole section of the galaxy. That's really big to solve in two episodes. And yeah, this was like the fast way to, I guess, resolve it all. But honestly, like if you if I'm a writer in that room and you're like, I need a solution to this, I don't know that I could have necessarily come up with better. I feel like every answer I would have given would have been a Deus Ex Machina, whether it's a bomb in the planet or a you know, Q-like being or something like that. I, I think she should have introduced some variation of that uh, mutagenic weapon that we saw in the uh, Enterprise two-parter with the uh, Klingons, uh, explaining why they had that uh, look of the original series. Uh, maybe she tasted, uh, or not tasted it, uh, <laughs> tested it. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> uh, well, maybe she did taste it, too. She uh, taste-tested it on a couple of those Klingon houses, made them look more like those old-school Klingons, and said to the rest of the, uh, the Empire, like, hey, do you want this to happen to you again? I'll make you look this way unless you bow down to me. But honestly, Cam, is there any honor in her taking over as a chancellor by just threatening, you know, nuclear destruction of her home planet to anybody who does not obey? No. And it also results in this. I have the pad. So, like, leave me alone. Yeah. And uh, don't worry, you'll be okay and I'll continue to rule. Now... That is huge scale. That is the leader of an entire planet. Um, and now let's just like look at a TNG story called Gambit, where you had the villain on that had like a thing to I don't know electrocute the people on that ship. And look at how they plotted to get that away from him and overtake him, it basically cause a mutiny on the ship. And that's just like a small selection of people. Now expand that to an entire planet and a ruler who has a pad that controls a bomb on the planet. Believe me, Laurel would not be making it very far. Well, remember how tenuous her control seemed to be of the Great Klingon Houses by the time we got into early Season 2? And we had, uh, I believe it was uh, the House of Kor. And mm. was it, like, somebody in her own house? Like, maybe her own uncle? Or was it, like, an uncle within the House of Kor already plotting against her? I remember there was some sort of evil uncle involved. And they had to stage the death of her son and it was just like like how firm is your grasp of this society and they all have the knowledge that you could blow them up at any second here yes that's true was that the episode where they had the listening devices in the makeup (laughs) (laughs) just as i predicted cam just as i predicted one of the most insane uh, additions to Klingon mythology I could ever have imagined. Yeah. And, it, you know, obviously the way the trajectory of Discovery went, we hopped far into the future to leave all that stuff behind. I don't know that I want Strange New Worlds to grapple with these story threads, but it I feels know. like the sort of thing I would have been genuinely interested because I really like Laurel. Um, I would have been interested in delving more into what's going on with the Klingons at that particular time point if Discovery had stayed in that particular time period. Like, I think you could have had some genuinely interesting stories, but at this point, what, okay, what do you think the likelihood is that, like, Strange New Worlds addresses any of this? I think in as much as we might get an appearance of Laurel, it mm-hmm. may be one or two episodes in season two, uh, but uh, <laughs> addressing her grasp <laughs> on power... I don't think they want to touch this whole thermonuclear weapon. Uh, and for those that might 
not recall it, it's through the uh lava veins that go throughout the entire <laughs> planet they these weapons have implant been implanted by section 31 or like what <laughs> like so i don't know because the thing is like the, the more we break it down the sillier it sounds and if you have to do that on television I mean, they're going to try to yada yada it, but it's going to be a bit of a stumbling block, and it's going to be clumsy. I think they'd rather just, like, it's something from an entirely different spin-off show. Why would the Strange New Worlds writers even want to try to tackle this? The most I could see would be some sort of, like, tossed-off line of Laurel saying something like, we have much more unity since we worked together to remove the bomb in our planet core. Sure, sure. And that's that. Like, I, I, you know, that's the sort of thing that would answer that, you know, nagging kind of plot thread. But you could say it in literally a sentence and move on to the next thought. We have much more unity ever since I gave that pad back, you know. It's like, <laughs> okay. I mean, but, you know, I was saying, like, it would be very hard to come up with a solution. Do you agree, though, like, to wrap up that season in, like, two episodes is almost impossible? Yeah. Well, I, 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 to me, the more I think about that whole season and how it was plotted out, it was so clearly just being done on the fly, you know. And, yeah. Uh, I, 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 in whatever parallel universe exists out there, I'd love to see what Brian Fuller's original intentions were for the first season of Discovery. Yeah. No, I would. I don't too. think it's I what mean, we got. No, no. I mean, I remember when we were in the convention this summer. And someone acknowledged, like, boy, just wait till one day. I think it was Larry Nemechek said, boy, wait till they just write the book about the making of Discovery Season 1. Like, it'll be incredible. And yeah. I believe him. I believe him 100% that that would be one of the most riveting Star Trek books that has ever been written. Oh, and speaking of Brian Fuller, you know, like, he has kind of disappeared off the face of the planet for, like, the past five years. He was attached to that Apple TV Plus series um what is it called like strange adventures or something like that and then just suddenly in the past week uh i i think he's attached to some new show uh called like dust bunny i think okay uh, mads mickelson's gonna star in it as well oh, so cool. it's like yeah I, I i mean i'm down for that uh hannibal reunion so I, i'm i'm glad to see that brian fuller is working again because i i think just as like a visual storyteller uh i i think that like He's amazing. Was it Amazing Stories he was working on? I think that's what it was. Yeah. And okay. but the the I don't know, the, the rumors at the time is like he had just been presenting these wild out of control budgets to Discovery and that's why he was kind of uh, kicked to the curb there and then he was kind of doing the same thing with the Amazing Stories uh Amazon or Apple show. And so it's just nice to see that uh you know 5 years later he he's back to doing something creative once again. Um, remind me, what was the, uh, reason he departed American Gods? Uh, budget, again. Again, okay, interesting. I, I kid you not, yes. It just, everything that kind of followed him around, it was always concerns about budget. Hmm, yeah. It's one of those things, you're not, he's not quite big enough a name, I guess, to get those budgets, but he delivers if he's given them, so. Yeah, yeah. and I think, don't quote me on it, but I also think it was an issue with, uh, Hannibal. And that uh. every season they kept asking him to cut the budget. And by the time you get to season the the season three finale, uh, I think the uh, the studio because there's an interesting like international studio partnership. And the only reason why this I think it was a French studio kept co-producing this is because uh, the agreement was that it would be airing on NBC. And as soon as NBC said, you know, we, we can't keep airing the show that's getting like fewer than a million viewers week in, week out, the French studio, they pulled out as well. And I think the issue was, is uh, they were co-financing it for this ridiculous amount that, uh, you know, it cost NBC barely anything to air. But even then the budget kept creeping up and up as they were trying to tell, you know, Brian Fuller, like, look, your show's not getting ratings keep it down and down if this is like 10 years later though i don't think that would have been an issue i think we would have been getting like you know five six seasons of hannibal right yeah and okay i mean i would love for like fuller to do a star trek season of his own like we'll talk later about you know andor but you look at what like tony gilroy's doing with this relatively short run season it looks like it's gonna be two seasons like great let him run wild let him do his thing and it would be cool to see brian fuller given say, like, a one-season Star Trek story or something. 
Yeah. All right, Cam, uh, what do you have up next? And uh, <laughs> we might have to ramp up the pace uh, if we're to get to Cam Dort today. Sure, sure. Yeah, um, I honestly, like, I think I'll just, like, kind of close out my discovery stuff with um, the spore drive being an environmental hazard. Um, as introduced in season two, where we found out, you know, may, that maize people in that alternate, you know, spore universe were being harmed by the spore drive. And I don't know, they bring back Culber. And uh, we really didn't ever um, talk that much about the damaging impact of the spore drive. It was mostly hand waved away, but it seemed at the time kind of important. Well, we kept bringing it up, I think, throughout season uh, two, and we're like, okay, are they ever going to address this? Oh, we get to season three. Um, I, I guess, uh, you know, you'll get people on the Facebook pages, if this comes up, they'll say like, well, obviously you have technology in the uh, 31st century to solve this. Well, then say something, say something on screen. Mm -hmm. And then also that doesn't explain why they kept using the technology in season two of Discovery after that May storyline had still wrapped up as well. And it's just kind of like I. It just makes me also wonder, like how how thoroughly did they think about the uh, the piece of fungus that fell on Tilly's shoulder in the end of season <laughs> one, when they're like, okay, okay, guys, let's break season two. I've got it. Fungal alien who looks like a childhood friend, and also brings back a character we shouldn't have killed. <laughs> oh God, yes, uh, and uh, of course you're referring to Doctor Culber, which um, oh, yes. that fungus man, that, that's some uh, strong fungus. Um, why don't we jump over to Picard here? Because Cam, out of all the main characters we've ever seen in all of Star Trek, some of whom have been dispatched in some way or another, has there been any other main character who's been abandoned the way that Narc was uh, to any degree? In which, even in the season one finale, they literally deleted his final scene in which there was maybe some sort of closure in which he was being taken into custody by Starfleet authorities. For all we know, he's still hanging out on the android planet, living his best life in that jail cell there. This was absolutely bizarre. And you can make, you know, arguments about, well, that show had like many villains and, you know, I'm going to talk about one in a few minutes. Um, but uh, it doesn't matter. Like, there's no resolution to this character. We spend so much time with him and Soji on the Borg cube and to not give any sort of ending. It's one thing to delete all the footage of him. Like, they just, I don't know, time issues or whatever their excuse was. Give some sort of mention of, like, you know, the androids have agreed to keep him in their prison. Moving on. Like, just give me something. It shows you, though, that, like... And it was something we tracked over the course of covering that show. And then in the year since, just kind of re-examining our thoughts on season one Picard. And that... Narek was very clearly um, set up to be the central antagonist of that first season. And then it was like they realized, oh, like the stuff with like Rizzo and O is more compelling and also has kind of a... Wait, wait, wait. Did you just <laughs> say, oh, that stuff with Rizzo and O... I think I did, yes. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. As yeah, always, yeah. I love interrupting you, Cam. Uh, yes, yes. But it's like they realized that that had more of a a driving force for the story of what the Romulans were up to. Yeah. And so they kind of just, like, what do you do with Narc at that point? You have to just, like, abandon him. And that's what they did. And it was very frustrating. I remember that episode we covered. I think it's the penultimate one where he's not ever seen on screen. It's just a ship <laughs> with, like, people, characters <laughs> saying, like, oh, hey, it's it's Narc and his ship. <laughs> no, wasn't he just, wasn't that episode, uh, he didn't have any lines? He was just, you could see him in the cockpit of the ship. And he's just staring. Something, yeah. Was yeah. it that or was it you heard That's what his it was. voice? Was it, okay, you did see him? He, okay. He, he, you did see him. You, he never had any dialogue in that episode. I think that was Broken Pieces, if I recall correctly. Uh, I think it's actually Arcadia Ego Part 1, maybe. Okay. Oh, okay. No, I, I, I'm, not right. die no, on this, I'm not no, going to no. die on this hill, but anyway. I think you might um, be right. Okay. But, like, that's just it. He was meant to be your main antagonist for the season. And they're... they're People with have it on good authority, like very reliable people, saying that the uh, last seven or eight episodes had their scripts all had to be scrapped, and they were just kind of writing things on the fly. That kind of explains um, <laughs> some of the other uh, abandoned, hilariously abandoned plot points that uh, we can also discuss with regards to Star Trek Picard. Yeah, um, I I think shared your opinion, like. It's not like we wanted more Narek stories. We really didn't like this character on the show at all. Um, but 
there's no finality, which is just frustrating because that just means your time was wasted that little bit more. Because not only did you have to sit through this, you know, kind of like toxic character, but you also didn't even get sort of a satisfaction of comeuppance at the end. So just the worst, just the worst. I I feel very confident saying that he's not even going to be mentioned in season three of Picard. Like, no, uh, they've Picard, washed their hands of that character. Yes, Picard is a show that likes to reboot itself every season, so I don't expect a lot there. No. And this is actually a jumping off point for me to talk about a character that I, I guess, mentioned, you know, a couple minutes ago, which was, oh, the, uh, you know, Romulan who had intercepted Starfleet. General, was it General O? Yeah, yeah like that was her, uh, her designation in, uh, in uh, Romulan, but then, of course, in Starfleet, she was Commodore O. Yes. So we had, you know, O as not the big bad, but kind of the big threat storming in at the end with all the Romulan ships and Riker stands up and she takes off. That's the sort of thing, like, I don't... And what does Riker say? I don't remember what... Oh, didn't he say something about kicking your Tal Shiar ass or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he said kick your Rom... Or, yeah, maybe it was... uh, No, because she wasn't in Tal Shiar, was she? Or she was in Jat Baj, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Maybe he just said Romulan ass. Who knows, Cam? Yeah. But, like, that's not the sort of, like, lingering threat where you're like, I need this paid off next season. Not necessarily. It's a looming Romulan threat out there, but it's a character that's been set up the way that, say, like, Tomalock is on TNG, where you can check in every now and again and that character pops up. Well, season two's over, Tyler, and we've seen what it seems like they're advertising for season three. Do you get the sense that O is ever going to be revisited or that looming Romulan threat? I just think that Amanda Plummer has been recast to portray uh, O in season three of Picard. I, I think that's obviously what the trailer's dictating, Cam. You think it's the same character? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Again, there's no finality. I think that's a problem with her. It's just like she takes off tail between her legs, never to be seen or heard from again, despite the, the big threat that she poses. Having like been in charge of Starfleet security uh, for her uh, big chunk of her career as this uh, half-Vulcan, half-Romulan agent, it, that seems like a very serious security breach. And again, never addressed. No, no. And it's the sort of thing that like would have driven a lot of interesting stories. Because Narek, we didn't like. like. That was a character that just didn't work. But, oh, there was nothing wrong with that character. And we liked Rizzo as well. But at least Rizzo got resolution. Uh, kind of a lame resolution, but resolution nonetheless. And, and for those that might not remember, it's uh, Seven of Nine pushed her down at the Borg Cube and she fell to her death. Yeah, and often if you are on a series and you're killed, it's kind of a downer because you're like, oh, well, the paychecks are going to stop from that show. I got to leave now. But uh, in her case, she actually came out winning because her character got resolution, whereas the other Romulans didn't. Yeah. Uh, Cam, I want to talk about Soji's plan. What is her plan, (laughs) Cam? What is her plan? Here's the problem in which you have uh, Narek and uh, Rizzo aka Naressa, uh, you know, kind of pondering this. The camera closes in as I wonder what Soji's plan is, and they need to uncover what her plan is. That's why you have Narek kind of infiltrating her psyche, becoming this toxic boyfriend, trying to figure it all out, Cam. And guess what? She has no plan whatsoever because the writers abandoned all those scripts and they had to rewrite everything on the fly, but they left that one moment in as they closed in with the angle of the camera and the music swelled to make you wonder in the weeks that would ensue because of Miss Mystery box storytelling. What is her? Pl- what? There's oh, oh yeah, there's, there's no plan, Cam. <laughs> I don't even know what there is to say about this one because it's so absurd that it's left in. Um, I, this one is frustrating because what it would have you think is that this is justifying all the time we're spending on that board cube, and it's also justifying the role of Narek as sort of this fake boyfriend who is going to kind of manipulate Soji and try to reveal something about her through later on through basically torture. And it all kind of comes for naught because she has nothing to offer in terms of information that could really help them in any major way. So, like, it's just a waste of time. It's why I think, like, Narek is set up to be your antagonist, um, kind of your primary one, but it's like Rizzo would have worked better as 
that kind of character because you still could have intertwined her with um, Soji in some sort of way, but kept her role within Starfleet as well and had it work out much cleaner versus introducing the mess of Soji's plan and Narak, whose primary role is to basically be an undercover operative and expose something that isn't even there. Yeah, it just, I, I look, if Rizzo was just there and kind of befriended Soji, you know, mm-hmm. but here's the problem, like, because then at least, like, Rizzo would have been able to be bouncing off of Com- Commodore O, who, again, had a lot more gravitas and uh, charisma as a villain than Narak ever did. I think you could honestly take in the whole Borg Cube uh, subplot, uh, whittled it down to exactly one episode, the one in which, you know, Picard returns to the Borg Cube, uh, very briefly, yet again, gets over his PTSD, uh, like uh, nothing ever happened, uh, says hi to uh, Hugh. Um, Hugh hmm. gets... Um, uh, <laughs> knife to death like he's some sort of uh, freighter captain in a bar in the 21st century and then <laughs> you like uh, take off over to uh, planet uh, Nepenthe with uh, Soji and uh, also such mean that this character of Soji w- would only need to be in like uh, four maybe five episodes of season one mm-hmm. of the card it just really shows you like remember just how much the uh, whole Borg cube plot seemed to be just stretched out week after week after they introduced it it was just it was so infuriating and also like rizzo went through the admonition so she had had the visions of you know this future where like the uh you know the androids were going to like basically rain terror upon them so like that's a character with an actual motivation who would make way more sense trying to manipulate soji to find out the location of the android planet versus narak who it's kind of this murky character who we watch get ordered around a lot by Rizzo. You know, you remove him, you kind of remove that middleman who's not even necessary. Well, speaking of the admonition, uh, you know, we had that uh, Commodore O provide that mind meld with regards to one Dr. Agnes Gerardi, and she's turning into a murderer of her boyfriend, and the entire time, the way that it's played, it's as if she has seen... Uh, an admonition, you know, uh, like something so threatening, she's doing it of her free will. She is yeah. convinced that there is a plan. There's no agency taken away from her. Uh, it's not as if she is being possessed. It as she has come through her own realization that this is something she needs to pursue. And then at the very end of the season, they're like, uh, eh, don't worry. I think it was actually, no, wasn't it at the very beginning of season one of Picard, or season two of Picard, where uh, she kind of uh, off the cuff told a Delton what happened, and they're like, oh, yeah, uh, no one can blame you. Uh, Starfleet was like, yeah, we get it, don't, don't worry, as if she had just been possessed, which is not how that plot was being showcased to audiences at the time. It's okay if, you know, the writers want to yada. Actually, no, it's not okay if the writers want to yada yada something. (laughs) Um, The problem is um, you kind of enter into an agreement with your audiences in which you are telling them one thing, and then if you decide to retcon yada yada it in an offhand line, it is very kind of a, a sign of disrespect to the audiences about what they're invested in, and it makes them wonder, like, well, how much... in investment should I put in these characters and these plots be moving forward if the writers so casually just yada yada things. Yeah, and I mean with uh, Agnes, uh, by having her cognizant of what she is doing, it really removes her ability to use the LaForge mind's eye defense. Exactly, <laughs> like, yes. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry, I, I was under the control of the Romulans, I didn't know what was happening. You know, when this one was on our list, so I was looking at it today and just kind of like remembering some of these moments and looking up some stuff on memory alpha when i came to this one it's almost like i just was like i don't even know what to make of this because it's like the journey of agnes gerardi <laughs> from like um I don't, a corrupted murderer of her boyfriend to borg queen leading savior. some sort of borg, borg queen savior. Sa- yeah borg queen savior <laughs> I mean, there are some crazy journeys in Star Trek, but this might be among the craziest. Okay, I predicted this the whole time. From her, <laughs> the episode she was introduced, I saw this coming the entire time, where she would end up by the end of season two. Absolutely. <laughs> of course, of course. Such an obvious it's arc. Just, it's insane. It's the sort of thing that if you were to describe the arc of Agnes Gerardi to someone who had never seen Star Trek or had never seen new Star Trek, they would think you were insane. <laughs> or you were a teenager writing um really bad fan fiction 
well, <laughs> that, that, are you talking about the writing of season one Picard? <laughs> yes, and season two of Picard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we'll see about season three of Picard. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Agnes stuff is never going to pay off in any way. And it just was a t- thoroughly muddled character. They never really bothered to unmuddle. And whereas, like, say, Soji, who didn't have the issues that Agnes did, they just kind of wrote her out at the start of season two. Um, Agnes, they dragged along for this kind of like predetermined endpoint they had for her. So I, I don't know what to make of this one. It's bizarre. Um, I did want to touch on another aspect of season one, which was the space tentacles that are set up. Um, I don't really expect this to be ever revisited again on the show, but Star Trek has introduced a world now, a galaxy, where like there are tears in space that can happen and giant robotic tentacles are going to spring forth at any moment. But it's not just that. It's giant robotic tentacles from a hell dimension. Yes. Like, this is the sort of thing you would see in, like, a, I don't know, like a Silent Hill movie or something. But, like, to introduce this into the into the world of Star Trek, I'm willing to go with you for things like Q and some of these, like, super powerful space alien kind of stuff. You know, Nagillum, things like that. When you have, like, an entire galaxy of characters who at any second could be at the mercy of enormous tentacles from space, basically the space kraken from hell... Oh, it really kind of breaks the universe. It, it well, okay. We have to suspend our disbelief a lot when watching Star Trek, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, you know, there, there is kind of a breaking point too. And you're like, wait, what? Really? You know, they're never going to tackle this again, as you said. And, and I, I think this is a happily resolved plot point in that you know the android planet they agreed not to summon them. You know, they're a young society. I think the writers and the rest of the uh, writers to come over the next hundred years of Star Trek, zero interest in ever returning to this robot hell dimension. Yes, and I will say, though, if I was a character who experienced this, like one of, you know, Picard's La Serena crew, I would never stop talking about this. This would, like, give me just the biggest existential crisis for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, maybe just a couple of quick ones I, I want to fire off here. But uh, remember the uh, old Romulan warbird captain? They kept talking about uh, how he's <laughs> shaking things up in the galaxy and uh, we never got to see his face because that's what you kind of do with big antagonists is that uh, you build him up, build him up, and then there's finally a reveal. Uh, Cam, we never got that reveal. Uh, speaking of which, uh, remember Captain Crandall on Nepenthe? Uh, that was uh, uh, Will and Riker's daughter's uh, captain friend that she was always talking about. Uh, oh my god, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I, nothing ever came of Captain Crandall, despite all the buildup uh, towards this fella. And then, uh, lastly, uh, child sacrifice in Strange New Worlds. Cam, will it be hilariously abandoned as it was at the end of that episode? Uh, I think it was at episode uh, six or seven of season one. Or do you think that you might have uh, uh, Pike come back to that planet? I mean, I think in some ways you want to resolve it by going back, but I don't want the episode where they go back. I just want to skip that one. So I think they leave it and move on as Star Trek famously does at the end of most episodes. Um, You know, leave it in a captain's log. Exactly. Perfect. Um, I've got a few other ones that I just had that I'll mention quickly. Uh, The Fenris Rangers. People keep talking about the Fenris Rangers. Let's do something with the Fenris Rangers. I suppose this one is lingering because we don't know if there'll be a seven spinoff in the future or something that could examine this aspect of the universe. But you can't throw around a term like Fenris Rangers without any explanation, really, or showing us what exactly this is. It'd be like if, like, imagine if they just used the term McKee a lot but never actually showed you anything about the McKee. It would be really annoying. I bet the Fenris Strangers wear vests. <laughs> I'd like to think so. And I just had a couple that I underlined as like, watch out for these. Um, the Calypso thing. You know, we obviously had that short track setting up Calypso. It hasn't paid off yet with Zora, but we'll see. Stay tuned. Um, Giorgio disappearing through a time portal to become some sort of time warrior. Stay tuned. And lastly, the Adira carrying a symbiont. They made a big deal about a human carrying a symbiont and what it could mean and the complications to do with that. I don't know. Stay tuned. Does it even matter that they're a trill at this point? No, it doesn't matter at all. Um, And just the very last one, Picard Season 2, 
Uh, you and I, I remember, talked about this in the episodes fairly recently, but uh, FBI agent Wells set up to be <laughs> something of an important character, had an encounter with, like, the uh, Vulcans uh, before, you know, Cochrane and whatever, that changed him forever. He helped Picard get out. He's fired from the FBI, and that's all, folks. <laughs> Well, and for anybody that might disagree about that and like, oh, no, he was always meant to just be like kind of a minor character that plays a plot point, um, you know, in, in this journey. Well, A, it is kind of a plot point that just is stretching out the plots uh, to so that they can make that 10 episode mark. Uh, but the other thing is, this is not how you do storytelling. Like if this is supposed to be a 10 hour movie, you don't introduce a character uh, and essentially give him an entire hour all to himself just so he can quit the FBI and give the crew a bit of a handoff at the very end of his big episode and he's never heard of again like that's just that that's not basic storytelling right there at the very least he has to be there at the end when they are going back to their home you know place their home uh, timeline waving goodbye to the ship or something you know that's the sort of like a movie ending because this is just head scratching as to why you spend an entire episode developing this character just to drop him yeah. Uh, Cam, uh, Cam Dort. Uh, I like the episode title. Favorite episode title. Uh, it, it it's uh, what you often say to me. Uh, nobody's listening, Tyler. <laughs> nobody's listening to you. Uh, yeah. Uh, another okay. Uh, another solid episode in which if this was like episode two of Andor, I would have been like, I don't know what this show is doing. Does it really think it's a supposed to be a ten hour movie? Um, I was actually cool with this episode. Like, it, it, it's like it, again, it has the beginning middle end it's building 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 it doesn't follow that same structure that we got where it's you know uh episode one episode two episode three is the climax and then we kind of speculated last week that that might actually be the case that we might not get like a, an episode nine in which they have this explosive climax uh all that said this is a very tense episode when we're talking about all the prison stuff uh i thought that was very engaging uh what was going on with uh Andor. and i'll tell you cam the, the scenes with uh 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 mira and uh tarn <laughs> when he um uh, approaches her to uh, fanboy over her um outside the isb office and she doesn't have him arrested because she kind of digs where he's coming from even if she doesn't really want to admit it uh, to me uh, that, uh, that was my favorite moment of the entire episode you know and like i love what they're doing with the uh imperial stuff I'm not cheering for these folks, but I am fascinated by following their processes and watching people be smart, connect the dots and everything. And, and like that's how you kind of build tension, and that's how you feel conflicted as a viewer. I, I, I want to feel conflicted as a viewer. And, I, and this show, like this episode in particular, it just did it so very, very well. So yet again, not, not the most explosive episode of Andor by any means, but a very solid one that I, I think it's going to be yet another building block for whatever they're going to next week. Well, it's interesting we were talking about Narek and sort of this toxic character. And you look at how they did it on Picard, and you look at how they're doing it with Karn. And it's so much more interesting and compelling done here. A character who does not have a lot of qualities that are particularly <laughs> admirable. Um, I don't know that audiences are falling in love with Karn, but it's consistently fascinating to watch this beaten down character just struggling to find a place in this, you know, it seems like imperial regime at this point in time and how this could like he could really be like a wild card of this show and that's been a genuinely interesting thing whereas like narak you never had that kind of possibility i i don't know what they could have done they could have made that character some sort of wild card character but he wasn't so i i've loved that i like that this episode is very much like it, a lot of it is obviously about the prison that Andor is stuck in, and obviously it's about kind of the turning of the Andy Circus character to someone who is, it looks like, going to, you know, help with the escape. But it was a lot of characters just stuck in their own prisons through this episode, whether it was, you know, Karn <laughs> at home with his mother or Mon Mothma feeling trapped in her house um, with, you know, this family and a Senate that doesn't care about what she has to say, or even Bix, the character who. I'm still kind of scratching my head about what her role is on this show, but nonetheless being held captive and tortured for information in a scene that actually kind of made me laugh when they're talking about how she's going to listen to the sound of like dying children. I'm like, yep, this is definitely not the Star Wars show for kids. <laughs> no, it's strange new worlds. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Battery children. Yeah. <laughs> 
are you expecting an explosive prison break episode for episode 10 and because I, I, I guess what I, I the leading question I'm getting at is what do you really do for kind of a climax of the season at this point if I I, I would suspect episode 10 is going to be like an exciting prison break episode what do you do with 11 and 12 that is the question I was having to myself and I was even questioning watching this episode which I agree with you I thought this was a um, really solid episode it didn't feel like wheel spinning to get to something like I was genuinely interested in where it was going but I was also at the same time thinking of like okay um they've said you know Tony Gilroy said he can wrap everything up at the end of two seasons but I'm like what really are you wrapping up because I'm thinking of like where Andor is in when Rogue One kicks in and it's not really that far away really from where we are now or at least it didn't seem like it and really I guess it's just relying on you know, I guess disposing of some of these adversaries on the show. So I'm really interested in just like how they're going to continue to develop this. But as a way to wrap up the season, I honestly think we are very close. It has to be quite close to the introduction of the assassin droid that would become Andor's friend in Rogue One. I think the Alan Tudyk robot whose name, I think it's KN something. Or is it KSO8? Yeah, maybe, yeah, I think so. Yeah, KSO8 sounds right. I, I think that character is going to enter the fray pretty soon. I, it seems like a good teaser for season two. That's what they've been building this entire time in the prison. <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah look, I, do you think we might get like a Mads Mikkelsen appearance in season two? Oh, I hadn't even considered that. Um, or do hmm. we even need one? I don't think we need it, but that doesn't matter because Star Wars loves to inject. Look how many times Jimmy Smith has popped up in like Rogue <laughs> One and then on um, on Kenobi. It's like they love to work in characters where they can't. Now, this one's a little different because it doesn't feel as sort of classically Star Warsy as some of the other movies and TV shows. But I think if they can find an organic way to work in a character like, um, you know, Mads Mikkelsen's character... <laughs> no, no, no. J- Jimmy Spitz. Uh, Jimmy Smith. You mean an Organa way to work in the character? <laughs> Wait a second. Could Jimmy Smith's feature into this show? He could. Uh, I w- I wouldn't put it past him. No. Yeah. Like, w- why isn't he hanging out in the Senate with uh, uh, Mon Mothma? I think. Oh my God. I think we could have a. Yeah. Okay. Who is the more exciting tease at the end of season two, Jimmy Smith or the robot? <laughs> um. I, I would say KSO8 is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think you want yeah. a season, quite, you know, like a, a good, like, stretch of time to develop the relationship between Andor and KS, because I, that character really worked quite strongly in, uh, in Rogue One. And I think building that relationship would just add to that value. Uh, do we get either a de aged uh, Billy D. Williams or an <laughs> aged up? uh donald glover in the season one finale cam uh yes to both yes to both (laughs) (laughs) thank you there's like a crossover you know that sequence in looper or uh in which we see how uh uh what's his face uh joseph gordon levitt transforms into uh bruce willis at like a certain point in like shanghai yeah um i think we need that moment here in uh the season one finale that's the what all of the the entire finale is centered around is that transformation i mean sign me up sign me up for this do you think the prison break is going to be the next episode like is that what we're yeah, going? Yeah, hundred percent, I hundred percent, and I and that. So I kind of wonder though if that means uh, the final two episodes essentially serve as a kind of a, a two parter, and that they're essentially like a a block of a, a two hour movie, essentially. Yeah, because I think we have to establish Andor really as rebel spy, and I could see them doing that by the end of season one, and that could be like the direction of season two of like more of kind of what his character did for the rebellion because we haven't seen a whole lot of that and it seems like if you just got you know your 12 episodes in season two it seems like the sort of thing you'd want to put those wheels into motion for season one so it's just occurring to me right now as i think about this and as i'm fawning over how the isb is being showcased here and that i'm not cheering for them but i am eating up all of these scenes in which they're in and we're discovering their processes and how there's 
people that are competent. It's not just, you know, stormtroopers that can't shoot straight. But the fact of the matter is, uh, five years from now, we've got this Imperial spy, you know, and it means as if they kind of the, the search for one Cassian Andor was not successful. Oh, you mean Rebel Spy? I wonder if, sorry, Rebel Spy. Well, yeah. So what what is he then? What's the difference? Well, the the rebels. Oh, you mean like I I, I like I, I was thinking like uh, a, a a spy embedded within ah uh, the Empire. gotcha gotcha okay yeah yeah sorry that that was confusing. So I I wonder though if essentially this season finale ends up with this entire operation that Mira is leading uh, kind of blows up and collapses and there's a lot of disgraced ISB members you know it, 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 because like how do you just kind of abandon what seems to be kind of the most important thread unless access you know the Stellan Skarsgård character uh, or uh, code name is discovered and so they just kind of give up any sort of search in kind of the most bureaucratic banal way possible they give up the search for Andor moving forward and also like if you look at the movie Rogue One, the big like battle at the end, the you know the Death Star plans. That's like the first like major victory of the rebels. So like that means to me like you can't have like it seems unlikely they'll have this huge rebel victory in season two of Andor. So I think actually like breaking down you know the ISB or something like that would be a way to give like a genuine sort of impactful kind of resolution to the show as to what. The, what they accomplished over the course of the show because otherwise I don't I don't know what you really like what are the fireworks at the end of the journey right uh Cam it's going to be a, a Mon Mothma visiting the Ewok embassy in Coruscant <laughs> and she's going to be playing the drums and doing uh, somersaults <laughs> um what? literal fireworks how long is Mon Mothma going to put up with this husband of hers <laughs> look she's dedicated to her politics you know sure also how long is she going to put up with that daughter of hers that, no kidding like it, it's almost like comedic how like terrible they've written this family like it's it's they've set it up so it's a very easy family to abandon <laughs> yeah so that's your old boyfriend huh whoa gross um and i also like how they establish that they're grade school friends mm-hmm. so it's not as if this guy was just hanging around the uh the high school basketball court with like a a, a toothpick it is mouth at, you know, age, uh, you know, 20, hanging out with, like, the 13-year-olds. Uh, you know, they, they, we bring it up because of the age discrepancy that's very clear. I think this is a guy who failed grade after grade after grade, and that's how um, he's friends with Mon Mothma uh, in uh, third grade by that point. Unless he was the teacher of third grade. <laughs> <laughs> grade school friends. <laughs> Like maybe he was like the young yeah. teacher just out of teaching school, you know, backwards hat, turning the uh, the chair around. Like they're like, "What up, teach?" <laughs> like that kind of guy. Yeah. Okay, uh, I went to this like Christian high school, and there were like there were like coaches, or even in one case, like not while I was there, but there were the stories about like the teacher who eventually married a student years later. Mm. It was just always like skin crawling stuff, but that stuff happens, and it's just like, Ugh. let's not go there, Star Wars. Yeah, please, please, no. I did want to give uh, kind of a shout out to this episode for one moment too. Like this show, I think you'd agree, it pretty much denies Star Wars fans like the fan service they're kind of used to getting over the Disney era, uh, and I give the show points for that. But there was a moment they worked in a very organic, cool moment, which was when we have Bix being interrogated slash tortured and the door slams down and it's kind of like a tilted camera watching a uh, Imperial guy storm away. And that is the exact replica of the shot of Princess Leia being tortured in A New Hope oh. with the door slamming down and a stormtrooper, like, or maybe it was an Imperial commander walking away. And I was like, awesome. That's a way where like Star Wars diehards are definitely going to jump out at that moment and get excited. But it's not that kind of, kenobi-esque lazy fan service that i just think honestly makes the franchise worse yeah i did not make that connection there so um cam uh very briefly we want to touch upon um uh, what this big huge franchise film starring uh one of our favorite star trek actors ever uh Dwayne the rock johnson from uh voyager's sunkatsi fame uh you and i we finally oh got God. around to seeing black <laughs> adam um uh tell tell the audience uh how much you love that film cam 
I'm caught off guard. I never realized I'd be talking about Black Adam on this episode of the podcast. Um, uh, yes, uh, this was a movie that we've talked on this podcast about, say, like the messy writing of Picard season two and things like this. This movie, Black Adam, very much embodies the like messy, making it up as they go approach you see on some of these lesser Star Trek stories. Um, it is unearned. Um, relationships, it's characters talking about the relationships without us ever having experienced in any sort of organic way what those relationships were. It also basically checks all the boxes off all the bad DC movies you've seen. Want a really generic, boring CG villain? Boom, you got it. Um, world building done incredibly rushed to try and catch up with Marvel? Boom, you got it. Um, you know, speed ramped action scenes that are really just sound and fury signifying nothing? More of that. And I thought this movie was terrible. Cam, why was there a Smashing Pumpkins song playing at the start? Like, it's just it's just like these weird, like, filmmaking decisions. It just seems like a, a giant vanity project for The Rock. But it was just completely yeah. incoherent storytelling. And, and the reason I bring it up, though, is because I don't think you and I are unfairly picking on the storytelling, especially in season two of Picard, which was just nonsensical. But uh, again, I, I bring up Black yeah. Adam because this just fails the test for basic storytelling. And um, where you're obscuring the motivations of characters, um, you are clearly missing out on like uh, big moments that were left on the cutting room floor that would have explained a lot of the relationships. And it was just like, I, I, it wasn't as if this has like a really, really complex story, but it was mostly, I was just confused like moment to moment about who was attached to what character or what their dynamic was any given moment. Cause it just seemed as if it would just change on the fly. And I just, I, it, as again, was not invested in what was going on here. Well, I was talking about fan service with Andor, and like this is a movie that often relied on knowledge of fan service to fill in all the gaps, and that's just not you know that's not that's not something you can do, and that's not something Marvel typically relies on either. And it's not like I'm anti DC either. Like I've liked some of the DC movies. You know, I thought Birds of Prey was pretty entertaining. Um, boy, uh, uh, I like the Batman, but in terms of like the kind of the shared universe stuff, I, I've just found a lot of these movies kind of rough going. First Wonder Woman was fine, whatever. Same with the second one was fine, but like, it's just like they are not learning. And that's the thing. I, I got the sense they were learning. And then this movie really shook that confidence. But now that James Gunn has taken over, um, James Gunn, you know, director of the, you know, the two Guardians of the Galaxy movies and the third one coming up. Um, we'll be overseeing the creative side of the DC universe, so hopefully he can make some sense of it, because it just, this was kind of like the, uh, the. I feel like in some ways Black Adam was possibly the the last gasp of that Snyderverse, you know, DC storytelling model. I'll just say, uh, it just makes me all that more excited for uh, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Uh, when you mm. look from, you know, uh, Black Widow all the way through to uh, Thor, Blood and Thunder, uh, it's uh, or Love and Thunder, I should say. Uh, the only good movie in this latest era, this latest phase of Marvel, has been the last Spider-Man one. Um, it's been yeah. a lot of turds, so uh, to varying degrees. So I, 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 a lot of hope pinned on Wakanda Forever at this point. Hey, yeah, like I really hope that one delivers because it's like. You know, clearly we're Star Trek fans doing this show, but, like, we like other properties out there, too, and you want them to be good. Like, you don't like your time to feel like it's wasted or that your investment in something is just being kind of milked just because. And that's where I feel like some of these later Marvel movies and TV shows have kind of gone, and it's where it feels like DC is gone. And so I think a lot of studios are trying to figure out how to generate constant content around an IP, because that's what people want now, while maintaining quality. And Marvel did it for a long time successfully, but they're kind of shaky lately. But you see how a lot of other, you know, owners of IP are experiencing that, Star Wars included. Alrighty, Cam. So we are going to be coming back next week. Uh, we're going to do, as promised, kind of a block of reviews for Star Trek Prodigy. Uh, the next two episodes we will follow up with a review of what I expect to be a, a prison break episode for uh, Andor. And yeah, it'll be kind of a fun... Um, I, I like 
kind of the, the looseness of the uh, the format that we've got going again now that we don't have to do weekly reviews of Lower Decks, um, Strange New Worlds, Picard, Discovery. Uh, we can look forward to that in February, Cam. But uh, in the meantime, yeah, we're, right. we're going to have uh, a lot of fun with kind of a looser format for the next few weeks. That's right. And I'm totally looking forward to Andy Serkis's character really surviving this uh, prison break because sure I, I don't have good I don't have a good sense of this being the case. <laughs> no, his brain is going to be implanted to KSO8's uh, droid body and that's uh that's how we get to the finale. That would be an amazing twist. Uh, okay, you can of course leave reviews for us wherever you get your podcast and you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Cam V as in Vulcans encountering Agent Wells Smith. And you can find me at Reportin, that's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N, N as in Narc. That's probably the last time I'm ever going to talk about you. I don't know about that, but okay. <laughs> okay, well, fair enough. Until next time, <laughs> the arena is closed. Ransom my heart, but baby, don't look bad, because we've got nobody else. We're running with the shadows. Transfer complete.